0: You're listening to Topcast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com/topcast.
1: Okay, and welcome to another episode of Topcast. We have a very, very special show tonight with somebody that's been in the business a long time and has a family tradition that is pinball. Um, We're going to be introducing him in just a second. Um, I also have with me tonight my engineer, Mr. Jim Shelberg of the Pin Game Journal. He's going to be helping out here. He's also going to be helping with the interviewing um, because he's actually really good friends with this gentleman. And uh, So I'm going to kind of let James do at least a lot of the uh, questioning up front and we'll, we'll see how he does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah you never know with Jim that's the whole thing you never know so hold on a second
2: special guest.
1: special guest. special guest. special guest. okay I have with us on the line Michael Gottlieb and I'm sure everybody's familiar with that name Gottlieb and yes he is Gottlieb and uh, hi, say hello to us Mike make sure we get your levels okay
3: Good evening. How are you guys doing?
1: Good, good. Can you hear us? Okay, Mike.
3: Yes. Okay,
1: great. Uh, now, Mr. Shelber is gonna uh, start out. He's got some uh, some questions for you that I, 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 he's actually uh, run by me in the future or um, beforehand, and they are there are some pretty good questions. So we'll let him run with it.
2: Great. I, I passed. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He passed. Uh-huh,
0: yeah.
2: Uh, Michael. Yes. I I talked to you earlier, and I asked you uh, uh, to try to think about what your earliest uh, memory of uh, pinball uh, is um, as you were growing up, because you certainly had it all around you from the day you were born. I presume you don't remember that far back, but <laughs> what, what, what would it be, would you think?
3: Uh, well, my earliest memories are um, having games in the house, and um, we actually had uh, the Gottlieb delivery truck come every month. The gentleman's name was Chester that drove the truck, and every month Chester would come, and he would pick up um, the current game that we had in our living room, and he would drop off a new one, and sometimes he would drop off a couple of new ones if they had a uh, extra single player that had a short run or something like that. So my earliest memories were a new pinball machine coming into the house um, every month. Uh, my dad playing, you know, playing the game uh, at the house and um, learning how to add on score reels. The concept of carrying, you know, when the nine snapped over to the zero, the next number snapping over that's how I remember adding in my mind when I was a you know when I was a little kid because that was just kind of like all all I knew and I also remember coming home every single day from school and playing for at least an hour so pretty much from about you know 19, 1974 uh, up until my dad uh, sold the company and then that became no longer involved with it I, I played pinball at home for about an hour a day
1: And what was the first machine that you you remember that you had? Do you remember any names of the games?
3: Um, Probably, you know, I have vague memories of, like, Jungle Life, Jungle King. Okay. You know, kind of that era. Pretty much any 73 or 74 Gottlieb would would be something, uh, you know. um, And then the ones that, you know, I, I remember really liking Jet Spin a lot. And uh, the bowling one, 300, I think it was called. I liked all the baseball games, any of the poker games. I remember Royal Flush was really good when we had that in 70, uh, 76. It was kind of weird, because if you had a game that you really, really liked, you didn't want the truck to come and take it away for another one. <laughs> but it was my dad's old line, you know, what's, what's your favorite game? And his answer was always the next one.
1: Hmm. Now, were they taking it away because you were like a mini- Test location, sort of speak.
3: Um, well, I think it was just the nature of um, the way things were going back to the dawn of time. My grandfather always had a game in the house, and my uncle Judd Weinberg always had a game in his house. And I think it was just that way. I think it was a convenient situation where, if my dad wanted to, I don't know, in private, if you will, sit and play whatever was on the production line. Or just have it, I mean, it was just you know it's what it's what the family did, so you wanted to have one in the house in case you had people over or whatever else they were proud of it um... it wasn't like you know some of these massive collections today like i said it was only one game but the, the nature of it was it was always good to have a game around my dad used to joke if you work in a bell factory long enough you don't hear the bells anymore and i remember playing pinball while he was watching the news and he could drown out the sound of the game he could always drown out the sound of a pinball machine because he was so used to it
1: Now, did you have any uh, any siblings any brothers or sisters
3: yes i've got a uh, i've got a younger brother joe who uh, he sells electric cars here in San Diego. He's a couple years younger than uh, than I am, but he was a he was a big pinball player as well.
1: And was he? I mean, did you both of you guys ever go to like the factory when you were a kid and kind of like tool around the factory and you know play hide and seek and
3: stuff? Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. We used to go. Um, uh, our dad used to take us down to the factory anytime we had a day off of school. Um, there and then, there, then then there would be days where we would we would ditch school where he would say, hey, why don't we go down to the factory instead of going to school? I don't know why he did that. Probably because he thought it would be cool or whatever the case may be. But anyway, yeah, he would take us down to the factory and um, give us uh, you know give us a tour and show us everything that, that was going on. And it was you know it was like Willy Wonka land. I mean, you know there were hundreds and hundreds of machines all lined up on the production line in varying degrees of assembly. And those 70s Gottliebs were very, they're beautiful games, very, very colorful. And the Reds, before they faded into pinks 15 years, 20 years later, the Reds and the Backlasses were just magnificent. And um, they always had, uh, you know, a row of about maybe 10 games in the engineering department, prototypes, in varying degrees of, um, you know, put together with instructions written in uh, black uh, Sharpie, you know, on the play field. And um, because we were the boss's kids, the engineers put up with our hijinks. And we weren't troublemakers or loud, but we played. We would just go in there quietly and play game to game to game. And then sometimes the, you know, uh, Wayne Nines or something would ask, what do you think? And we would tell them, but it was a very casual type thing. And then um, we would uh, ride around on the forklift, go back to the stock room. Uh, we, had a really, you know, we had a really good time. Those were, those were, it was really fun. And the people there were always really nice. And I mean, my dad was a really nice guy. I mean, he was a really nice person to work with. So I think that they were, you know, tolerant and gracious of his two little monkeys running. But he always he always welcomed us there and liked us having there, liked us being there. He, he, he saw that we got a kick out of it.
1: So just to, so everybody knows, your grandfather was David. That's correct. Your dad was Alvin. Yes. And then you've got you and your brother Joe right. running, running around the factory. Right. Riding on the forklifts, bothering Wayne Nyman, who was the key designer, game designer uh, at the time, and basically getting in trouble. It sounds like.
3: Uh yeah, I mean uh, you know I I think it's, you know our father was very strict. He didn't even have to open his mouth. All he had to do was look at you, and you knew to you know to straighten up and, and fly right. And if we were going down to the factory, I mean we would have nice clothes on and make sure our hair was combed. And there was some level of behavior required. And my and my uncle Jud Weinberg. Um, you know, he was always there, and he would take us down to, to see him. So it was never, like, running around screaming crazy or whatever, but, yeah, I mean, grab a handful of uh, playfield rubbers or, you know, play if you found some playfield inserts or all sorts of cool stuff, you'd stuff your pockets with it, and then when you got home, you'd have, you know, all sorts of treasure. Uh,
2: Mike, I, I got, actually, I just changed the picture on, on, the, uh, on the webcam, web- webcam of... Uh, Elvin and, and your grandpa and Walter Winchell. Is there right. anything you can tell me right. about that Right, that's picture?
3: when my dad was thin with black hair. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Yeah. Now, who, who is, who's Walter?
3: Um, gosh, I think Walter, Walter Winchell. Winchell was, I want to say he was a reporter or something like that, but I, I think the context of this is that the Gottlieb family was uh, heavily involved in the Damon Runyon Cancer Fund, Correct. Uh, where they were always raising money for cancer research.
1: Now, there's, there's an actual Gottlieb, Gottlieb Hospital. That's correct. Right. And what, how did that come about?
3: Um, the way that came about is that my grandfather was, you know, he was a very interesting man. He, didn't, he, he, he came from nothing. He made more money than he ever, you know, could have ever conceived of. And once he had enough to take care of his family, he pretty much just gave the rest away. And um, instead of just giving it away and writing a check and not paying it to any attention to it, he thought it would be really good to give back to the community. And that was the whole genesis of uh, Gottlieb Hospital. In the early 1960s, my dad was the guy. I mean, the, you know, the, the Gottlieb family funded it, but my dad was physically the guy watching them pour the foundation, and he was flying around the United States interviewing doctors. So, you know, he kind of he built that whole thing. Um, from from the ground up, and it's just massive now. There's like there's a huge campus with multiple buildings, and um, it's doing great. My cousin uh, Jack Weinberg is the chairman of the board over there, and just doing a great job.
2: And your uncle Judd uh, had a lot to do with that, also.
3: He did. He did. I think he's less involved now. Jack, David, and Rich, who are Judd's three boys, are uh, the most involved, and then my other cousin uh, Peter Gottlieb. He's involved as well, so it's it's. Um, Judd was very very involved, as was my aunt Margie before she passed away in '94.
2: Um, okay, so now, uh, do you do you remember uh, Pinball Expo? Do you remember when someone talked to you about that at all? Or
3: uh, I remember the first time Rob Burke ever called my father, and. Um, My dad thought it was an interesting idea and was receptive to it. And I think I I vaguely remember the first time we ever went out to dinner with Rob before they had the first expo. And Rob was so adamant that my dad had to go and be the guest speaker, that he was going to be the linchpin to kick off this event to actually get people to show up. And I remember Rob being kind of like Rob is today. I mean, very uh, enthusiastic and excitable and, uh, you know, just crazy about pinball. And um, very uh, reverence that he actually had a chance to, to meet my father because he had been such a fan of Gottlieb games for so many years. Um, so those are my memories of that.
1: We just had a picture up on the webcam of uh, you and. Was that his cousin? His
3: nephew. nephew. My nephew, Stephen. Yeah, I'm watching the webcam right now. It switched back, but uh, yeah, that was um, that was uh, uh, my uh, nephew, Stephen Conkey, um, and Jim Sherd, who was somebody I met at Pinball Expo. He. Um, and uh, now works at WMS in the... On the yeah, on the left there, is Jim Shirty works in the gaming department uh, doing the cabling for the slot machines. Yeah, I'm probably 13 or 14 in that picture.
1: So, when did you know that you were going to end up in the... I mean, you're in the coin-op business now. You work for, what, for Midway, right?
3: Yeah, well, I'm in the, I'm in the uh, interactive entertainment industry, right? I, I, make, I make video games for PlayStation 2 and for the Xbox, and whatever else yeah that's a little more recent right there Um, uh, from the earliest age from the youngest age I could ever remember and my dad ever saying when I was four or five years old I said I want to make games for a living it's all I ever wanted to do Um, I found I thought it was just the coolest thing in the world quite a great deal of what I learned um, from my father I still apply today in making consumer video games because fun is fun and entertainment you know the form of entertainment it can be a movie or music or a tv show um but interactive stuff like uh pool billiards you know darts uh, pinball machines video games you know handheld systems to me there's threads of uh, similarities and good game design and what's rewarding and fun for somebody um, none of that has changed so yeah from the earliest age all i've ever wanted to do is make games
1: and did you uh, when you got out of high school, did you go right into it or did you go to college first?
3: I went to college. I went to Northern Illinois University uh, and got a degree in business management. Um, probably would have taken some game design classes, but none of that existed. Everything that is you know uh, exists now in terms of these schools offering, Um, major um, in-depth courses for people that want to be artists and programmers and, you know, producers and all this stuff. None of that existed back then, so I just got a plain old degree in business management.
1: Okay. And then when you got out of school, what was your first job?
3: Uh, First job out of school was Alvin Gianco, where what had happened was uh, my dad came up with this idea called a switch flipper. And um, we came up with this game idea called Soccer Ball, which was the two-ended pinball machine thing. And the short of the long is that we originally intended for Gil Pollock and Premier Technologies to build it, but at the time, Gil was so busy building games, it was around the Cueball ball Wizard era, era, and things were going really well at Premier. And it just so happened that Gottlieb Hospital had a building on a piece of property they had bought. They spent the money for the property and not for the building, if you will, but there was this building there. So we thought, well, you know, let's start a pinball company and and see what happens. And that was exactly what we did. And we started with the the two-ended soccer ball game. And as is frequently the case when you try and start something from scratch, we had a lot of challenges and things didn't go exactly as we had planned. And we moved from soccer ball into doing regular pinball machines for a very short period of time with mystery Ca- World Tour, Mystery Castle, and Pistol Poker, <clears throat> but at that point, the industry had really slowed down a lot because there, were a little, there was a lot of inventory out there and not enough buyers for all the games that the distributors had sitting in inventory, and when you're the last man, you know, lowest man on the totem pole um... you know you're the first one that gets uh... that gets next so i i I, I, well, I got out of school we did the Alvin g thing for uh... a couple of years and at the end of it we had started talking with williams about building some adam's family gold machines in our facility or maybe doing some uh... doing some redemption pieces with williams because they had that adam's family values thing and they were there were some other pieces they were looking at but ultimately we just decided that there wasn't going to be any future in it and April 18, 1994, I officially went to work for Joe Dillon and Roger Sharp at Williams Valley Midway.
1: Now, how hard was it to land that job?
3: Um, well, <laughs> that's, it, it That's was, like the job know, everybody would it want. What had happened was, I'll <laughs> tell you the truth, the truth was we were looking to sell Alvin G and more or less sell the designs because we had product and development but things weren't going great and we had several meetings with Ken Fidesna and Neil Nicastro. And had talked to Joe Dylan multiple times and when it didn't pan out, um, the conversation just turned to well you know Michael do you think you, would you be interested in joining us so it was just a very organic kind of thing as opposed to a uh, you know let's let's go get him kind of thing and I always joke I mean it probably didn't hurt that my last name was Gottlieb to get my foot in the door but if anybody Anybody that's worked for Williams in that era or in recent eras—it's absolutely a meritocracy. If you—if you don't know what the heck you're doing, you don't last very long. So it didn't hurt, but uh, I'd like to believe my uh, being able to sustain my employment has been—you know—my last. No, my last name doesn't have a whole lot to do with it.
1: Right, right. Because that's—you know—it's like you—you—you've jumped from one—you know—for as a pinball nut, you've jumped from one pinball job to another. That's been like a dream, you know what I mean? It would be a dream for most people
3: to yeah, do something Yeah, well, I like actually, that. you know, I, I'm extremely, extremely fortunate because my dad had a lot of friends in the business, and in varying degrees, I kind of stopped over everywhere and was around everywhere at different points in time. I did work a summer at Data East Pinball for Joe Cam and Cow, which was an absolute trip. It was very enjoyable. And uh, wait, wait, know, wait, 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 wait. Stop right there. You <laughs> worked as, like, an intern at Data yeah, East? That's correct. What
1: did you do for them?
3: Um, let's see. I put together play fields. I did whatever needed to be done. You know, the coffee and donuts kid. I put together play fields. I helped. Uh, I, t- I would take stuff apart, put stuff together if they were having problems out on the production line. The stickers on Monday Night Football weren't sticking and adhering properly. So I was out there trying to help them out with that. And, um, you know, just generally, you know, do whatever needs to be done.
1: How old were you?
3: Oh, God. Sixteen, maybe give or take.
1: Oh man, you know,
3: you know, this just kills me because <laughs> this
1: is like, you know, any you know, a sixteen-year-old kid working at a, at working for working for Joe at Data East. It just sounds like a you know like a dream. Like, I mean, were you paying them?
3: I <laughs> know I was making seven, six or seven bucks an hour, you know, minimum wage or whatever, probably less than that, I guess. I mean, I was making minimum wage, and um, it was amazing. It was a trip. It was really a fascinating experience, and you know, all these years later, now working for a big corporation doing very expensive projects with lots and lots of funding, a lot of the lessons you learn when Joe and Gary were doing what they were doing on a very, very modest budget, you know, those are very valuable lessons. It doesn't matter how much money you have. In fact, you're a lot more resourceful. When you don't have nearly as much, uh, you know, financial backing to do to do things, and the other thing that I always that's always stayed with me is Joe Kamenkow's level of enthusiasm. No matter how challenging a situation was, he was um, extremely enthusiastic and motivational and fired up. And um, you know, he was right. I mean, you know, you have to believe that you have to be a dreamer, right? I mean, you have to believe that you can do things if you ever want a chance of uh, achieving them. So I, you know, I stayed over a summer there, and I was around Premier Technologies a lot. I didn't work there, but I was over there a lot um, visiting. And then before, when we first, first started the soccer ball thing, we were over at Premier all the time talking with them about them building the piece, and they actually did some early engineering on it with us. So um, I had that experience. And then I got to uh, I got to work at Williams, and at that point there were still a lot of people from the old Bally era, and Bally was a separate corporation. So I got to know a lot of those guys. So it's been um, you know it's really been an honor and a privilege across the board. I've kind of uh, kind of known and touched everybody in some form.
1: Wow. So when you were when you were at uh, doing oh by the way I own one of those head to head you know I, I own the soccer ball game. Oh yeah. Oh that. That uh, flipper switch thing, right? That is the coolest thing in the world.
3: Yeah, it is pretty neat.
1: Because I owned a Joust, which is another you know Williams head to head.
3: Right, the double ended pin game. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that game just sucks. Yeah, was joust wasn't yeah great. with just one player, it's just awful. I mean, right. there's nothing to it. But you play the soccer ball or the USA football, and you know when one player and It's like, damn, that machine's good. You know what I mean? It was pretty
3: clever. Yeah. Yeah. It was was pretty clever. It was a neat machine. It was just, it was um, difficult to build and being a first timer and not having, you know, electronics, not having all the components that you need. It was just an enormous, enormous undertaking. I mean, it's funny in a way, Clay, because, uh, you know, we, we do very expensive projects now. I mean, to do a video game, some of the top end, next gen stuff, you're looking at anywhere from fifteen to twenty million dollars but still ultimately it's just software and it's a heck of a lot easier than trying to build a pinball machine it just is i mean gary stern will tell you that building a pin game is the biggest pain in the rear you'll ever run across it's just so complicated there's so many things to go wrong and um you know you really need top-notch engineering to be able to pull it off to make uh, reliable products
1: now, where, I noticed that the board set you used in the Alvin G's was different than anybody else's. It was kind of more similar to Gottlieb System 3, but it, it still, it wasn't the same thing. Who who did the board designs for all you guys?
3: Um, you know, I honestly don't even remember the name of the company, but there was some company we contracted with that did the, the, the board design. I just remember that we thought it was pretty elegant because it fit. It was an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper, sized PCB, and it was a combination, CPU and driver board, where everybody else was doing it separately. And in fact, Premiere, if you remember at the end of that era, they were doing um, you know, daughter board after daughter board, and there were auxiliary boards. And by the time you opened the back box, there were you know seven or eight of these little tiny auxiliary sound board, driver board, and all this other stuff. So we wanted to start with a clean uh, sheet of paper, and it was um, MOSFETs as opposed to like Darlington transistor array. right. And right. it, was, it was a pretty elegant little system. You know, I mean, it was, um, it was fine. But again, it was the, the, the was the first time around the bend for the software and the, um, the board itself. And we had problems with MOSFETs acting up and some other stuff. And uh, it just it didn't, you know, stuff like that you really want to test. Forgetting about the fact that it's going to go in a pinball machine, that particular PCB hardware set, I mean, you want to test that for six to eight months, and unfortunately, we didn't have the time because the industry was hot, and we had orders, massive, massive orders for soccer ball, and couldn't build them fast enough, so it's a good problem to have, you know, but, you know, it, it just is what it is.
1: I've never had a problem with that game, though, ever, and I've never, I do a lot of repairs, and I've never had to fix an Alvin G machine, I mean, aside from, like, you know, maybe bad fuse holders. You know that, that right. over time, it has the same problem as like Data East. or like uh, the the material in the fuse holder just fatigues, and you got to put new ones in. But other than that, I um, you know, if the thing was it was kept in a nice environment, there was I've never had to fix one. I mean that you know that's you know testament to the to the design.
3: Yeah. Well, the later mission, the the later there was a, a revision to the board once we figured out what some of the issues were and we we made some changes we made quite a number of changes and the first handful of them were more problematic and acted up more um... than the full production run you have to remember in the business you run test samples you ship the test samples out and my biggest memory of that whole thing was uh, was a nightmare of sh- shipping test samples out and that, that weren't working there was a period of time where i flew from oh god england to japan there were england to germany to spain to italy to japan fixing games because we were having problems with the prototypes it was just the prototype run was a real nightmare so inevitably we got it all figured out but i you know my memories of that era were just the early stuff was just very very difficult um to get up and running and you know laser war at to east they had all sorts of issues and the earliest game plan products there were all sorts of issues it just you know you can't you can't, really can't get around it
1: Right, right. It just takes a little bit of time to right. you know to cut your teeth as it as sure. it may be, sure. you know. Now I saw that you were like a game designer too. I mean, you had your hand in almost God. It looked like every game, but but basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, goes on world tour. You know, it seemed like you were like a you know kind of a big time game designer too.
3: Yeah, I was heavily involved in design. I mean, you know, it was myself, Jim Sherd, Wally Welch, and Jerry Armstrong. Um, you know, and now when you, you know, game designer in the purest sense, in the Steve Ritchie sense, the guy that physically draws the play field, he's the game designer, but, you know, they were kind to me because in later years people started perceiving concepts and rule sets, right, like the way John Norris did both the play field and the rule set, that they, they would perceive that um, aspect of design as being equally important or having great value, and I was very much a guy about coming up with rules Um, I helped on some playfield layout type stuff, but more in a Roger Sharp fashion where I would look at it and say, well, what if we move the spinner to the left or this ball guide rail should change this way? But concept-wise, like Punchy the Clown was totally my concept. I got up one morning and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to do like a Mushroom World type thing and uh, the playfield be the face of a clown? You know and I brought that to um, to the guys and we essentially drew it up as I envisioned it um, and you know those it, it was fun it was fun coming up with those ideas
1: now yeah, Marvin is still running a, a Punchy the clown
3: oh cool you know
1: he uh, it, it actually makes a lot of money to be honest with you I mean its they um, made
3: great money yeah. they made great money the problem with Punchy the clown is it was a horrible redemption machine because it required skill redemption machines are all about taking your quarter as quickly as possible and with as little amount of skill as possible and i made the mistake of wanting to offer the cons- the player some level of entertainment value and that's not what those things are about you know we were competing with rock and ball and punchy the clown can't compete with rock and ball because the ball actually moves around on the play field and it takes more than seven seconds for gameplay.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah well seven seconds i don't even think you could plunge three balls in seven right, seconds right yeah,
3: yeah. So let's. Well,
1: it's still. I mean, it's. It's still a good. Uh, it's still a good thing. I mean. So. Well, anyways, um, we've been talking about thirty minutes. We're gonna take a little break. Run a couple ads, and um, i uh, let you rest rest your throat for a minute. Okay. And uh, we'll be
4: right back with Michael Gottlieb, um, right after these. Top guys is brought to you, specialties your pinball parts superstore. Visit their website at marcospecialties.com. dot com. You can search for parts by game name, game make, or part number. Marco Specialties was founded in 1985 and is headquartered in Lexington, South Carolina. They specialize in pinball parts, supplies, books, and anything pinball. Marco has been online since 1996 and is the web's oldest and largest pinball parts supplier. Their new 12,000 square foot distribution center services 25,000 customers in over 50 countries. Feel free to call Marco Specialties at 803-957-5500. Marco Specialties, your pinball parts superstore at marcospecialties.com. Topcast is brought to you by Pinball Life. Give your pinball machine new life with parts from Pinball Life. We ship pinball parts worldwide. Pinball Life is located in the great city of Chicago. Their phone number is 773-202-8758. We have an open-door policy, and you're welcome to call us with your questions and concerns. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Their website is at pinballlife.com. Pinball Life. No hassles, just the parts you need best. Okay, we're back with uh, Michael Gottlieb,
1: and uh, we also have on the line his dad, Alvin. And we understand that it's Alvin's birthday. Happy birthday,
0: Alvin. Happy birthday, Alvin. (laughs) Thank you very much.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I thought uh, when, when Jim mentioned the radio show and he mentioned that it was Sunday, I thought it would be fitting to give you a call, Dad, and wish you a happy, uh, happy 80th birthday um, because, you know, the, these guys and so many people I, uh, that listen to this show, I mean, they're such fans of, of your life's work and the work of your father that uh, I thought it would be nice to give you a call. Well, thank you very much. I'm enjoying being 80.
2: So,
0: I'm enjoying being anything. Actually, <laughs> yeah, there
2: you go. We uh, we have a little webcam uh, set up too, where so people can see uh, still photographs. And we had that uh, picture up before with uh, uh, you and your father and. Uh, um, um, yeah,
3: Dad. They're talking about the photograph with your father and with Walter Winchell. Do you remember the nature, the story behind that picture?
0: Oh yes, very definitely. That
3: was when Walter Winchell was
0: raising money for the damon runyon cancer fund and uh he came to chicago and the coin machine industry all the manufacturers got together and uh, raised money for that cancer fund
1: okay and um jim also has another picture up that's a more recent picture and it has let's see
3: is it Joe on the left Is yeah, I'm looking at it right now, so they've got a picture up from Pinball Expo a few years ago with my brother Joe on the left, and that's my dad, and that's our cousin uh, uh Dana uh, Goldstein, and she lives in Miami, and she's got a couple of you know got a couple of kids, and she was up at that time she was living in Chicago, so I called her and said, "You really should come to Pinball Expo and she came and stayed till like two in the morning playing old codley machines. It was pretty cool
2: uh, so that's Dana Goldstein. Yep. Okay.
1: And Alvin you know Mike was Michael was talking about running around the factory, um, you know, when he was younger and, you know, riding the forklifts around and, and you know, kinda of talking to everybody and, and playing the games and that. You know, what what was your take on that? I mean we've heard we've heard Michael's take. I'm kinda of interested to see what Dad thinks.
0: Oh, I got a big kick out of that because I was born into the industry and as a child. My father took me around his factory, and then when the boys were old enough, it was my pleasure to take them around and show them our operation.
1: Okay, now when you when you ultimately sold Gottlieb, what to, to Columbia Pictures, right? That's correct. I mean, was that was that a sad day for you or a happy day? Well, it was a
0: combination of both because. Uh, uh, we had been operating the business uh, for all those many years, and uh, uh, we got to a point of where my brother-in-law and I discussed the situation, and we thought uh, it was about time that if we could take it easy after that. And then uh, uh, he was, a, and a friend of his managed to come up with the the Columbia deal, and uh, the numbers were were good, and they did treat the people properly
1: did you stay on as like a consultant or you know as you know whatever as, you know as an employee at that point
0: yes i had a five-year management contract and uh, i stayed with uh... uh colombia and then even when coca-cola bought colombia i finished off my contract in 1981
1: okay and did you at that point were you pretty much ready to you were pretty much done with pinball or were you ready to keep going
0: no, I was at that point pretty much done because uh, uh I was quite busy being a daddy to Mike and Joe and enjoying <laughs> that very much
1: okay now when you um uh, when you sold out to or sold the business to columbia did i mean did they make any changes that you felt were inappropriate or anything like that, or did they were they pretty good about it
0: well initially no they uh uh stayed pretty much with the program as we had developed it. And um, then, of course, the video games came along, and uh, uh, the company got into that. And then when Coca-Cola bought uh, Columbia, things changed because Coca-Cola was what you call one of those mega corporations where you have to have a meeting to have a meeting to decide to have a meeting. Right, and uh, that wasn't exactly our management style.
1: So it was difficult to get things done at that point, huh?
0: Well, they 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 had a corporate mega structure, as I said, and uh, there were a lot more people involved in management, and uh, it was a tricky period. Like I say, what with the video games coming up strong, and uh, uh, they tried to get into that and didn't fare that well.
3: So
1: when did you actually come on board, you know, you you must have worked, obviously, with your dad at the factory at some point, right?
0: Yeah, when I got out of the Navy, I went to work at the the factory in 1947.
1: Okay, and what was your first, uh, well, how old were you, and what was your first job there?
0: Well, I was 20, and my first job was to work in the engineering department to learn uh, all of the ins and outs of designing, development, and production.
1: Okay, and then, um, I mean, where did you go from there, with the, you know, in the uh, in the uh, business?
0: Well, into just about all of the areas of the business. Uh, I did quite a bit of traveling amongst the distributors and uh, uh, helping with sales and and being involved in uh, uh, design engineering and talking with the various mechanics around the country, making sure. We were doing a good job building
1: the games. So, let me ask you this: Like, so, so Michael went into into it basically into game design. You were involved in it. I mean, was like your wife or, or 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 your or your mother like, oh no, no, not another family member making pinball machines. I mean, did this did this conversation ever happen, or were they all like, nope, the more the merrier?
0: Um, well. You jumped around and saying a few things. I didn't quite understand what the final question was. Well,
1: I mean, was you know everybody was getting involved. Everybody in the family, in the Gottlieb family, more or less was you know into pinball at some point. I mean, Michael, you know, got into got in on it. Um, you know, you were in on it. Obviously, you know, David was in on it. I mean, you know, it. it you got three generations of the Gottlieb family that were you know, you know, basically. You know, doing the family business, and I mean, was you know, were the the females in your life? You know, your your mom, your wife. You know, Michael's Michael's mom, obviously. I mean, did they all were they all okay with this? That you guys were all you know, everybody in the family was doing pinballish type you know work. Didn't oh yeah, were, well, actually, it
0: was only the men involved in the uh, in the business, um, and the ladies were on the peripheral of it. They participated in conventions and so forth, but the actual operation uh, was confined
3: to just the male members of the family. I would say they probably didn't really have much of an idea as to what it really consisted of one way or another to have an opinion. You know, it was more along the lines of everybody everybody needs a job. It's like Larry DeMar's mom. Larry DeMar designed, you know, Defender and worked on Robotron and all these great games, and of course, you know, a programmer extraordinaire, a programmer in Adam's family, and when Larry first started in the business, his mom was a little skeptical as to what he was doing, but then when he was able to demonstrate he could make a living doing it, his mom, Edith, was fine with it. And I think it's just been the same thing for me. I mean, if if I said I was going to pursue this and, and, um, you know, I wasn't able to uh, make a living out of it, you know, I mean, if, if I wanted to say I want to be an actor or I want to be a rock star and I'm I'm living and I can't, I'm not making any money and I can't support myself or my family, it's very different than being gainfully employed. So I don't think it's about pinball versus not pinball. It's about, you know, are you doing something where you can be gainfully employed and are you doing something that's not going to drive you crazy?
1: <laughs> so, so mom never gave you, you know, put your arm around you and said, Michael, we we really need a doctor in the family.
3: <laughs> there was none of those conversations? <laughs> no, because there's nothing about the game business that was particularly, you know, anything one way or another. I mean, my two children think it's very cool that I do it for a living, but I do I do, you know, consumer video games, and they love the Nintendo stuff and the PlayStation stuff, and I do games based on some of the cartoon shows that they see. So for them, they get a real kick out of it. They get get a kick out of the the, the product itself. And for me, I remember when I was a kid, I used to get a kick out of the fact that this is what my father did because I loved the games. I was very excited and enthusiastic about the games. But probably building out on your question a little bit is how my dad responded. He was um, interestingly indifferent, meaning that he never pushed that I really should do it with my life. And at the same time, he never pushed and said, no, you know, you don't want anything to do with this. All he ever wanted for me was to be happy. And if it was in the business, fine. And if not, that's fine, too.
1: So kind of a question for both you guys. Was there ever a temptation to go to the gambling side of the business, you know, opposed to... You know, the pinball, I mean, you know, gambling was always big. Bally kind of dabbled in it. You know, even Williams dabbled in it, to, you know, well, most recently. But, I mean, you know, prior, it seemed like everybody kind of dabbled. But Gottlieb really seemed to stay away from it. I mean, was that a hard decision? Or I'll
0: let I'll let my father answer that one. Uh, that was definitely David Gottlieb's uh, point of view. Uh, he wanted to be just strictly in the amusement game business. And... Uh, gambling was not of interest to him at all. He wanted to be able to provide, in his own words, provide amusement for the populace at a very low price.
1: So there was never a temptation to do that then?
0: Well, he did make a couple of games that uh, uh, were games of chance, but he just did, his heart wasn't in it. It was more or less to uh, maintain competitiveness and... Uh, he didn't enjoy it at all. And then I was in the engineering department one day when he came in and told us that that was the end of uh, our attempt at trying to get into that business at all. From then on, it was strictly uh, amusement
1: games. Because in 1952, when the Johnson Act was invoked, you know, that basically, you know, it didn't outlaw gambling devices, but it outlawed what the transportation of them. And, you know, it was just you and Williams basically making pinwall machines and the production numbers on the games were were fairly low I, I mean was this you know were you guys kind of wondering you know at that time you know maybe this you know maybe this isn't the right business to be in you guys still there
0: yeah I got a, a big static crash there for a second yeah
1: I heard that yeah just so that you know in 52 when the Johnson Act Came you know came in with you know you couldn't transport anything that was um, any sort of a gambling device and pinball machines kind of got looped into that. Did that I mean did that change anybody's perspective at Gottlieb because it was just you know the, here you went in the 30s from having hundreds of go- or hundreds of pinball companies to well our
0: perspective on it when the Johnson
1: Act was passed
0: was that uh, Dave Gottlieb's decision to stay in amusement only was absolutely the right way to go.
1: Okay, yeah, because I guess later in like '56, somehow that got uh, repealed for the pinball end of it, and then production numbers on on both Williams and Gottlieb pinball machines went way up. Um, you know, probably. You know, I don't know if that was a direct reaction, but I'm sure it had some uh, you know some bearing on it. Um, you know, that uh, pinball machines weren't well, there considered gambling during
0: yeah. that period of time about what would constitute a gambling pinball machine, and it had to do with uh, uh, the
4: The free games
0: being able to be knocked off, as they said in those days, and redeemed in cash, and uh, that would then constitute a gambling device, and then we started building uh, multiple player machines, which took more than one coin to play, one coin per player, and there was some confusion that uh, that would become a multiple coin game and uh, uh, through the help of uh, uh, some good uh, counsel, we brought that around to where they understood exactly which was which.
1: Now to jump forward a little bit to to the soccer ball game, I understand that you were very very involved with that that sensing flipper switch system that was on the head-to-head games.
0: Yeah, that was my invention, and that was, uh, was an item I thought was going to uh, uh, become a great big hit, and it was a good game, all right, but um, uh, it didn't make the kind of money that the regular pinballs did.
1: Oh, uh, I, I was telling Michael that I have one of those, and it just, that game is, it just, it kills me when you play one player how good it is. You know what I mean? It's just, the game is awesome. I mean, it beats me all the time. I hate it. You know, I feel
0: like a schmuck. It uh, it, it was a fun game to play.
1: Right. Now, how did you ever come up with that idea?
0: Well, I really don't know. It was one of those things where I kept thinking of an automatic flipper, and it took uh, a great period of time for me to come up with um, the invention of uh, the automatic flipper which uh, we did, and we built it. It was a nice item, all right, but uh, uh, regular pin games were, were the number one item on the agenda.
1: Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, because... I'm sorry, Jim Jim had a question. Oh, okay. He was giving me the stare like he did. You know, because, like, on Adam's family, they had this thing called thing flip where they had, like, a uh, an opto in front of the flipper yeah. that would, you know, actually see the ball pass and then, you know, it would automatically you know, kick the flipper to try and make a shot. And it's like, you know, your, your version was actually, you know, a predecessor to this.
3: Well, well it, um, the, the, uh, the device you're talking about, when Williams went to get a patent for it, it actually conflicted with the patent that we already had for the switch flipper. So as part of some cross-licensing agreements, um, a deal that we cut with Williams effectively, they were allowed to do their thing
1: oh okay that's w- that's where i was kind of going with that it was if williams actually did kind of get in a little you know had to get approval from you guys in order to do that
3: yeah it was fine i mean we had a little conversation worked out a deal and it was fine
1: were they pretty easy to work with at the time
3: yeah the, well they was old friends i mean it was steve Cordic and ken fidesna and the guys and so they were friends and it was no big deal
1: right okay okay now are you pretty good friends with Cordic?
3: Well, my dad is. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, I was. Steve was one of the quote old old timers. Very very nice gentleman.
1: Okay, and do you keep in touch? I mean, with a lot of people from you know the Gottlieb era. I mean, do you you know do you still talk to you know the, you know any you know any of the people that you know you used to work with there?
0: Well, I stay in close contact with Wayne Nye uh our designer, but uh, unfortunately, most everybody's gone
1: right, right, which is yeah really too bad, okay, uh we're gonna take a, a little break here, and um we will be right back, just hold on guys, don't go anywhere on me okay. uh, and um we're just gonna i'm gonna run a uh I'm gonna run an ad and 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 uh, let you uh rest your throat for a minute, okay, hold on a second. <coughs>
0: Hey, George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No, George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to? You're going to have to go to PingameJournal.com and get your
4: own subscription. But, George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, I got to go. Got to call Elaine. And tell her. I
0: can't believe how good this magazine. Is.
1: We're back with uh, Michael and Alvin Gottlieb, and again, we wanna we wanna wish Alvin a happy birthday. And Jim and I are gonna sing oh, no. Happy Birthday. No, we're we're just kidding. Happy. Yeah. No. yeah. Oh, did you hear that? Jim's Jim's a really bad singer. So, but Alvin, I really appreciate you coming on and 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 um and talking with us. Um, you know, I know you're busy, and we'll. Uh, We'll let you go in again. Happy birthday, happy birthday, and thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I always talk enjoy about talking about uh, the business. Uh, it was a good business, a fun business, and it always refers to the good old days. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Okay, All right, take bye.
2: care. Bye, bye, Alvin. Okay, good
0: night, yeah. Dad. Bye.
1: Mike, you still there? Yeah, I'm right here. Okay, just want to make sure I didn't lose you.
2: Uh, Mike, you m- you mentioned when you worked for uh, Roger. Um, Um, Well, I I asked you before if you were getting nervous coming up to airtime, and, of course, you said you weren't, but you told me when you really did get nervous.
3: Oh, yeah, I was uh, back in, like, 94 when we would go to the AMOA or ACME show or whatever. I was the guy that was uh, wearing the headset going through the 15-minute spiels, you know, hey, Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3, now with more combatants, doofus fatalities and babalities and animalities, and we've got this and that, and cash box earnings like you've never seen before, and um, have you seen No Fear Pinball? Have a look at this machine. The skull talks, you know, and I, I would do that for 15 minutes at a shot, take a break, have some operators explain to me how nothing we ever built ever made money for them or worked, which was always pleasant. And then had to put the headset back on and get back up on stage again and do that all day long. And that'll tear into you.
1: How old were you when that was happening?
3: Oh, in my early 20s.
1: (laughs) And so that maybe wasn't quite the dream job that you were thinking of at that time?
3: Well, you know, you, you, you don't think. You know, you're just in the business because it's what you want to do. When you have passion for something, you'll put up with a lot now in retrospect i'm a little bit older now and i think back and i think oh my lord i was a monkey out there dancing for peanuts but you know hey i loved it i loved every minute of it and and the real question is would i would i do it all over again and the answer is absolutely yes because some of the best times of my life and the most fun i ever had um was working like a maniac at williams
1: and what was like of your career in the in the coin-op biz what was your worst job that you ever had
3: worst job I ever had was was at Alvin G because at the end of it it it, you know we decided to close the place and um the worst job I ever had was shutting the place down because unlike a software company or a dot-com blow up where all you do is turn off the computers and take them out and sell them or whatever on ebay um now I mean then then uh... my gosh we had you know inventory and what do you do with pinball machine part inventory you know what i mean i mean it was just a real nightmare getting rid of all the parts clearing the place out it was a real headache and that was absolutely without question the most uh... depressing and unfortunate thing i had ever gone through but you know at the same time uh... every misfortune is a learning experience. You know, I'm the vice president of external development for Midway Games now, and those experiences the experiences that I had then with failure really taught me um a lot more valuable lessons than I've ever had with success.
1: <laughs> huh. Now, you don't actually work in Chicago, right?
3: No, I work in San Diego. I run the San Diego studio.
1: Okay. And does that is that a good thing or a bad thing, kind of being disconnected from Chicago?
3: I think it's a combination. It's it's a bad thing in the sense that, um, you know, corporate headquarters is in Chicago, so there are discussions that take place on a dynamic basis that we don't necessarily get to participate in. Um, but it's a good thing in the sense that, uh, you know, we have a different culture and we do things differently. A lot of software development takes place on the, on the West Coast, so it's very good to have a presence in southern california it, it extends our flexibility because our business is all about talent and if i find talent that happens to want to live in southern california as opposed to chicago midway san diego provides that option for them that's why we have so many studios we have midway um, los angeles midway seattle midway uk midway newcastle uh, midway austin midway chicago and midway san diego
2: hmm.
1: Now, I asked you what was the worst job you ever had. What's the best job you've ever had there? You know, uh, in best the best job up. I've ever
3: had is the job I've got right now. Um, because uh, I'm running I'm running the studio and I've just I've got some of the most talented people that I've ever run across in the business. Second favorite was probably that early nineties period working at Williams Valley Midway because it was really the end of an era. You know, Star Trek I think was on the production line it was that Demolition <coughs> demolition Man, World Cup soccer, Flintstones, Shadow, Roadshow era, and um, it was truly, you know, leading up to the end of an era where Steve Ritchie, Pat Lawler, Larry DeMar, all, John Trudeau, I mean, Brian Eddy, all the greats were there actively uh, making games, and there were five or six game teams all making games at once, and um, it was amazing. It was absolutely, I mean, it was... It was Camelot. You know, they were making more money than they knew what to do with off of, off of Adam's family. And Star Trek was successful, and um, you know, even uh, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, they cut that production run short, and, and it was like everything they touched turned to gold. And then on the video side, we had Mortal Kombat two. I I helped launch Mortal Kombat three, which was a phenomena. NBA Jam. Um, it was Hang Time, I think, one of the NBA Jam variants we launched. And we had the number, you know, we had the top two video games and the top two pinball machines in the coin op business. And it was a great, healthy business where we were selling lots of products. So those were good times. And I had so much fun with those guys because, they, you know, I mean, it was a privilege. It was an honor and a privilege to be able to work around Steve Ritchie and Pat Lawler and Larry DeMar and John Papaduke and Brian Eddy. And, uh, my, you know, the list just goes on and on.
1: At the time did you know I mean looking back on it it's probably easier to in kind of like you know hindsight is 2020 20, you realizing now how good of a job that was but at the time did you know that, that this is this is camelot as you say
3: No I don't think you, I don't think you can ever have that level of objectivity um... because when you're in the middle of it you know you were focused on making sure that the materials for the cruise cruising u.s.a video game are done or making sure that you know a game gets put out on test properly and there's a lot of headaches and a lot of challenges and um... you know some degree of turmoil that went on um, i think that if the organization continued to this day and those guys were still there i would look at it differently that i look at it now i treasure that experience because it was the end of an era i was able to be around at the end of something that would never be the same again i mean i love what gary's doing and i think that stern pinball rocks and he's got a lot of super talented people there but it's a different time now and i was able to be at williams at the end of the go- it was a, the golden era i mean it really was it was the golden era where you know they had infinite resources and engineering to do whatever they wanted and the, and the games really reflected that
1: wow well so well we're gonna, we're gonna we've been going like an hour um is there anything else you want to add anything we missed
3: um gosh i mean you know jim's comment earlier was i you know i could talk for for uh, uh more than an hour and it's absolutely true i mean all these di- these different eras have a lot of um, fun stories and interesting stories. Rob's asked me to do the fireside chat this year at Pinball Expo, which I'm more than, uh, you know, more than willing to do. Probably the probably the final uh, comment I'd like to make is I just got back from what they call the Game Developers Conference, which takes a place in San Francisco. It used to take place in San. Uh, um, uh, San Jose, now it's in San Francisco, and um, it's a huge, huge convention now, 10, 15, 20,000 people where they all go, and they all go to seminars to talk about the video game business and the future of our business, and right now there's this huge movement towards um, attracting what they call non-players, getting grandmothers to play games and getting, you know, women to play games and people that have not normally played games in the past, and what i the analogy is so startling to me because... Um, our business, the the video game business, in the last couple of years has really become about the hardcore gamer and building these products that are very complicated and that require a lot of time, effort, and energy that you have to invest to get good at them. And what we're finding is that audience is shrinking and we're looking to expand our base and we're looking at what we call the non-gamer. Well, you know, the guy in the bar 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, they were non-gamers they were not going to a location to play a pinball machine necessarily. There were some people that did that, but the point is is that such a great percentage of the cash box take of those games over decades and decades and decades were people that were there to have a shot and a beer, visit with friends, have a good time, and they happened to put money into a pinball machine. And if they, it was fun, they would put more money in it, and if it wasn't fun, they wouldn't put more money in it. And that whole model is something that our business now with the cell phone games what they call casual entertainment the nintendo ds this new nintendo wii with the with the gyroscope and the controller trying to get everybody to play games uh, what uh, the bottom line is what was true then is true now in order for us to expand our audience and to get more and more people to embrace games quote unquote they have to be simple they have to be fun They have to be accessible They need to be easy to learn They need to be hard to master And so essentially, granted I'm working on games that are $15 million now But fundamentally, it's no different than Baffle Ball or Five Star Final
1: Well you, you said that, just to hold you on just for one more second You said sure. that you had a, a couple uh, interesting stories from each era Is there, is there one that you can uh, recant for us on you know, as, as kind of a, you know, a last story here?
3: Um, I think uh Are you holding out just, for Expo? <laughs> yeah, I mean there'll be a lot of, there'll be a lot to talk about at Expo, but on a top level, just the, the the creative genius of Eugene Jarvis. He's just a different human being and he's gifted and he's very your your brain needs to be on a different frequency to be able to tune in with him and the intensity of Steve Ritchie. I mean Steve Ritchie's just I mean, you know, he's mellowed a lot. Um, But he was an absolute, you know, uh, Tasmanian devil. And I don't mean it in a bad way. You know, I learned a lot about um, the passion and the fire and the energy that you need to bring to the table to actually create something. It's one of the problems with our business these days, that people don't care enough. And people back then, people like Steve Ritchie, they could, you know, they weren't, they, they could be difficult. But you know what? They were difficult because they were trying to achieve greatness, and they were demanding, and they were intense because it wasn't about just a game there was some crusade that was going on and something that had to be done and you know there was it was greater there was a greater purpose and a greater cause and that's what you know that's how i operate in my business right now as I always think about the greater purpose and the great that level of intensity bringing your best game to the table those are the things I remember learning from Eugene Jarvis and Steve Ritchie
1: well is it hard to hire people like that today I mean is is like the you know today's you know x generation are they kind of sometimes missing that or, or are they easy to find I, I think
3: oh well, I won't I won't throw it out as a generation thing because that's you know that's not necessarily fair but I absolutely do believe that a lot of the the, the people that um, are in the business or want to get in the business um, you know Jack Nicholson used to say if you want to make an omelette you need to break some eggs and and, and cre- create the creative process demands a lot of you and it doesn't mean you have to live at the office but what it does mean is you, do, you need to be very committed and none of it is easy the biggest problem is everybody wants it to be easy everybody wants they're ego-gratified, and they want to be pumped up and feel, you know, do, do a million-zillions-selling game. But what they don't realize is how incredibly difficult it is to do that, because above and beyond doing a great game, it needs to be at the right time with a lot of marketing behind it, and you need to have the stars line up in order to really achieve um, that success. And, and I think that there's a greater lesson in what I call hitting singles, which is continually year-on-year year shipping smaller projects that are profitable, that provide good entertainment for the consumer, but not having to go for that Grand Slam home run all the time. And, you know, the the other big lesson, too, is that back in my dad's era, there was a new game on the production line every six weeks. You know, now our projects take 24 months. Well, that's two years of your life, man. You know and and to be able to retain your passion over two years is very different than over a period of six weeks right. you know there 's probably a sweet spot in between there, but yeah, I absolutely do see people being um you know apathetic and and just wanting it all handed to them. The greatest people in my business today that are doing what they 're doing have that same level of passion intensity and fire, and they don 't do it for the money and they don 't do it for the glory and they don 't do it for their ego. They do it because it's who they are. You know, it's who we are. We make games. This is what I do. The fun stuff is a byproduct of it, but so is the ugliness of when things don't go well. You know what I mean? So, there it is.
1: Right. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Um, Wow, it was great. And and I really appreciate you having Dad on, too. Um, Wishing him a, a happy birthday. That was... That was great. Do you
2: have any closing words, Mr. Shelburne? No, it's just great to, to, to hear you get bo- both guys, and we're looking forward to seeing you both at Expo, we hope.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, two, two quick plugs. Tim Arnold's obviously Pinball Hall of Fame is just spectacular. Tim's a good friend, and I think that what he has, it's an American treasure, and it will only be recognized as such over the years go on. And anybody listening to this, if you don't have the Michael Shaloub books, you must have them. The Michael Shaloub books are all really, really good. He went and found everybody, and they're, they're, they're very, very, they're not perfect, but they're as accurate as they can be because I was there for a lot of it. And then the third thing, obviously, is if you don't subscribe to the Pin Game Journal, what are you? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you, have to. you just have to. Thank you. All
1: right, man, you must have gotten a side for that one. Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll send you the envelope later. Late, later on. Okay. All right. Well,
1: thank you very much, Michael. You have a good night. We appreciate okay. it. Okay. You're welcome. Bye, thank Michael. Bye, bye. Bye.
2: Okay, and that's it all for Topcast tonight. Thank you very much for listening.